He's involved in a number of businesses. He's a great role model. Telling it like it is. Giving you both sides of the story. This is Cats at Night. Great American, a great New Yorker. Now, here's John Katsimatidis. John Katsimatidis here. It's Cats at Night. And uh, we have a TriCast again tonight. We have a WABC 770 on the AM dial. With, uh, also, WABC WLIR. And 9.70 a.m., the answer. We're up and down the whole East Coast and Canada and um, probably Northern Europe at, at times. Uh, we're in the uh, studio with us. We have a common sense Democrat, a common sense a Republican. We got Judge Richard Weinberg and Chairman Craig Eaton, a very uh, great attorney out of Brooklyn. And, uh, and on my side, we have my sidekick. Keeps kicking me. Yep. Uh, we got Lydia Serrani. How is uh, Lydia Serrani? How is today, today, International Women's Day? It was fantastic. Your daughter did an amazing job, as did Margot. And I was also able to host a two-hour show today. Wonderful time. So thank you for all that you and do. And you recognize an, women every day, by the way. And I do. I, I like powerful women. You do. You do. Uh, and we have uh, a also... Uh, what, what else do we have? We, we have a fantastic we have three, show. Three women on today's uh, show. We have Dina Martin to talk about her father, Dean Martin. Uh, Francine Lefrak to talk about all the great work she does in, in the world with women. Mm-hmm. And uh, we also have Patricia Miller. Patricia yes. Miller. And she, she defends, she's a great lawyer, I understand, defending uh, all the police that, uh, that the. Uh, the wolf culture the, goes after. She's uh, in the Corporation Counsel's Office, one of the senior people in the New York City Corporation Counsel's Office, defending the city. Wow. And we're also going to talk to Professor Alan Dershowitz, Andrew McCarthy, Senator Alphonse D'Amato. But first on the line, we have John Solomon. On the line with us right now is intrepid investigative reporter John Solomon of JustTheNews.com. John Solomon, so much going on in the world today. What do you have for us? Oh, my gosh, what a head-spinning day. Uh, Let's start with the president. President Biden announced a little while ago that he's finally going to impose that U.S. ban on Russian oil. He's cutting off Vladimir Putin's access to our oil markets, something that members of both parties have been asking for a few weeks. He's finally tipped in a little vague on whether he's going to ramp up U.S. oil or whether we're going to see just larger increases in prices. A lot of people worried that the price may keep going up with this move. But that was a big moment, a big change in strategy for President Biden today. Something closer to home, 9-11. It's hard to believe. But the 20th hijacker, the guy widely regarded by the FBI and CIA as the guy who missed the flights but was going to be the 20th hijacker, Mohammed Ahmed al Qatani, been released from Gitmo and sent to back to Saudi Arabia. He's been oh my God. no longer a threat. For mental health, uh, and he's also going to get oh mental health care, correct? Yes, he's now, going to get health care Saudi oil, style. Going back to oil in Russia, are we going to supplement it with Venezuela? Don't forget, Venezuela is a, uh, a, a subsidiary of Russia right now. It is. It is in a socialist country that's never had it. Just a year ago, uh, Joe Biden was warning about how he can't prop up Maduro. Uh, I think the president's in a tough space, right, because he doesn't want to ramp up U.S. oil here because of the political problem it creates on the left. So I think he's going to try to uh, I think you're going to see him go to Saudi Arabia, push the Saudis to produce some more, get a little bit from um uh, uh, Venezuela, maybe get a peace dividend in his mind. I'm not sure it is with Iranian oil and try to avoid ramping up the most obvious solution for most Americans, which is why not get it from Texas and Oklahoma? It's better than Saudi Arabia and Caracas, but um, he's in a tough spot. You can see him how held by the left side of his party. What I said on Maria Bartiromo's show yesterday, that North America should be a North American uh, energy treaty between Mexico and uh, Canada and the United States. We can produce almost 15 million barrels a day. Yeah, I mean, why are we checking around? Oh, have no fear. But, though, did you hear John Solomon? Biden said he's going to release 60 million barrel, gallons or whatever did he say today? <laughs> it, it, that, like making it, that's what, two days worth? That's, that's two, two days, days worth of our production, yes. Yeah, but I mean, not going to make a big difference. It might American save us a people, penny for a day. Are the American people that stupid? Or they, they, he thinks they're that's not. stupid? They're not, and also uh, they're not stupid every day they've been filling up because if you filled up two days ago and you filled up today, you saw a 20, 30% jump in a day. I mean, it's insane what's going on. John, the I highest predict price in uh, at, at, if, if it maintains $125 a barrel, you're going to have $7 oil by uh, late March, early April. Oh my That's God. right. 
Yeah, there's no doubt. So I don't think the Biden plan is very clear yet. And so we're going to have to keep an eye on that. But this is setting up to be a pocketbook issue, right? Inflation, gas prices, um, lack of confidence in the economy, worries about the value of the dollar. Uh, I think the question that most voters are going to go ask in that uh, booth in November, probably going to be, am I better off than I was a couple of years ago? And right now, the answer seems to be no. And I also understand that uh, Canada, uh, not Canada, Russia and, uh, uh, and China are uh, teaming up together on credit cards and on uh, everything else. Absolutely. You know, one of the things about this, this is a complicated chessboard. It seems like it's simple. All right, we should stand up to Russia. But one of the things that China has been looking for is that opportunity to undercut American currency and American financial system. And when those SWIFT um, banking system sanctions went in. It seems to have pushed China and Russia a little bit closer together. Maybe the start of an alternative currency or a financial market. That's something Americans are watching very closely in the U.S. intelligence community. Uh, we're going to have to watch and see if we just made two unlikely bedfellows that we don't want on the financial market. John Solomon, and, uh, our country is in deep doo-doo if uh, we keep going like this and, and somebody has to wake up the president to say, uh, Enough is enough. Let's let's take care of uh, ourselves and uh, make ourselves energy independent. Yes, 100%. Define the American interest first. That's always been what a president has done. This president's had a hard time with that. Thank you so much. Thank you, guys. Have a great day. Take care. Can you believe what John Solomon just said? A Saudi man accused of uh, being the would-be 20th hijacker, the Mohammed Ahmed Al-Qahtani, was released from Guantanamo and returned to Saudi Arabia for psychiatric treatment? I can't believe it. I mean... Are the American people that stupid to believe that those kind of stories? Maybe he's going to get some oil in return. Yes, absolutely. He's going to be a Why hero. would the he's Saudis go back even his care about this guy? Well, I don't know. Maybe you know who might know? Professor Alan Dershowitz, the leading constitutional attorney, just a couple of decades at Harvard teaching law, and he's a Brooklyn boy at heart, and he's with us every Tuesday here at WABC Radio. Hello, Professor Dershowitz. Hi. You know, we did the same thing. We released one of the people who was accused of blowing up the Pan Am jet over England because he was supposed to be sick and he was going to die and he was going to get psychiatric care. And of course, he lived longer than a lot of other people did. Um, you, You always see psychiatric help as an excuse for a political decision. So obviously, They've made a political decision to release this guy, whether it has something to do with oil negotiations. No, and of course, now we have the uh, the great NBA, uh, WNBA player who is being held as a hostage also. Um, you know, it, it's uh, so interesting what's the, the, the chess game that's going on uh, among the nations of the world. I was just on the phone with the great, the great hero of the former Soviet Union, Natan Sharansky who comes from the Ukraine, lived in Moscow, uh, knows all the players, has met with them all. And, uh, you know, like everybody else, he's so, so distressed. He has friends and relatives both in Ukraine and in Russia. And, uh, you know, this is just a, a, a tragedy beyond tragedies. And uh, I don't think I can't we're believe have they let one of those based on oil. You know? I can't believe they let one of those terrorists out. And now yeah. on top of that, uh, Iran is running around saying that the deal is made with the United States to get paid more than they expected to uh, for those four hostage releases. Yeah, and I mean, can you imagine? Can I you can't. imagine what would happen if Iran got a nuclear bomb? The the Iranians would make Russians look like pacifists compared uh, to what they would do if they had a nuclear bomb and nuclear deterrent. They would go into. Saudi Arabia, go into the Emirates, try to steal all their oil, uh, perhaps attack Israel. We don't know. But the idea of now giving Iran a green light both of developing us. nuclear weapons is just absurd. Alan, both of us were Democrats. How yeah. can they do that to the Democratic Party? How, How can they, they do, do that to that? all Americans? I mean, I can't believe it. This guy's 46 yeah. years old. He's going to go back to his country with all the secrets that he knows from when they attacked us. I mean, it's ridiculous. And he'll suddenly recover. And become, he'll suddenly recover. You know, very, and he'll be a hero very, in his yeah. country. And then he'll... No, he'll... Of course. It's a disgrace. It's so, Alan, disgrace. so what do you think uh, Israel has to do now to protect itself and its allies in the, the Emirates and Egypt and Jordan and Morocco? Well, the one thing that Israel has to do is insist that there's going to be a deal 
there has to be a firm announcement from the president endorsed by Congress saying under no circumstances will the United States ever allow Iran to develop a nuclear weapon. And if we think they're coming close, we will stop them, whatever it takes. If we make that announcement clearly and unequivocally and has bipartisan support, I think it would go at least part of the way to deter um, Iran. I mean, the, the problem is we know we don't trust Iran. They, they, they would never agree to anything which would actually curtail their nuclear program. You know, for years they said they didn't have a nuclear bomb program and that Israel stole its secrets and pr proved to the world that they were making uh, nuclear weapons at a time when they promised they weren't. So the United States has to give the world, Israel, the Middle East, a guarantee that they will use military force against Iran if Iran comes close to developing a nuclear bomb. Will they do that? I don't know. Short of that, I think it becomes a green light to Iran to continue to develop their nuclear weapons. At the very least, they have to give a green light to Israel. That if if yeah. the United States is not going to support a military effort, at least let Israel and the Emirates and the other Arab countries go in and do what they have to do. Well, you know, you, you know yeah. what the Ukraine says. Ukraine says, you know how much a, a United States guarantee is worth? Yeah, nothing. Yeah. Absolutely yeah. nothing. And by the way, aren't well, we going to have nuclear... nuclear weapons too? And they gave them up in exchange for American assurances that uh, they would be protected. 1994, from the British Pact. Yeah. So, so that's a, an example of why one, you don't give up nuclear weapons, and number two, why you should be getting your own. I, ask Saddam Hussein and uh, Gaddafi if they should give up their uh, their weapons. Yeah. Look, Sharansky made an important point. He said the real villain of this piece, and Sharansky liked him. Real villain of this piece is was uh, President Obama. When he drew a red line and told Syria, if you use chemical weapons, we're going to go in militarily and stop you from killing your civilians. And then there was conclusive proof that they used chemical weapons and biological weapons and all kinds of we illegal weapons of mass destruction. And Obama said, whoops, sorry, I didn't mean to say that. And it was the first of many invitations to Putin to not take seriously uh, what uh, the United States threatened. Our threats are worthless at this point. Me and Judge and, Weinberg, uh, yes. Me and Judge Weinberg uh, had uh, lunch today with uh, Tish James, the Attorney General, and she uh, is pretty much convinced that uh, Andrew Cuomo is running. I don't have a lot of faith in Letitia James. His commercials, um, you know, nice. he, commercials on TV. He's got Andrew Cuomo. Did you see it, John? Well, you heard what he said in that Brooklyn church. He talked about the cancel culture. And while I agree that the sexual harassment allegations were not proven beyond a reasonable doubt, all that other stuff, you know, you can't you can't discount everything else that happened with him. Yeah, but Tish James yeah. made a good point at this luncheon. She said that if Cuomo ran, he would get 35 percent of the vote. In a four-person race, that could be enough to win. Sure, sure, yeah, sure. And what was the other thing she uh, brought out that? Uh, oh well, you you raised the point, John, about uh, Governor Hochul being held hostage by the leaders of the uh, the Assembly and the Senate. Oh my God, what did she say? And she she kind of nodded in agreement because the one thing that's perfectly clear is that Governor Hochul is not taking the leadership in trying to uh, back Adams in protecting our city in terms of law and order and public safety. You know, we're backing Eric Adams on on, on a, uh, keeping the city safe, and uh, the Senate and the uh, Assembly told him to pound sand. And I just read an article that Eric Adams is proposing in a three-page memo that he wants to fast-track these gun cases. He wants to prosecute the offenders and get and move them through the system more quickly because right now we have about a 3,000 open gun cases here in New York City alone. And, of course, people are condemning it. What is wrong with... Uh, the right to a fair and speedy trial and getting – what do you think, Judge Weinberg? I think that they're entitled to a fair and speedy trial. I think you have to go after the guns. The courts have been backlogged because of COVID, but now they can start moving on this. We need to get the guns off the street. And it's not enough to say we'll try to get the uh, you know, the iron pipeline stalled because there are plenty of guns now that are out there. Even if you stop every other gun from coming in, you have to get the guns that are there yeah. now. I mean, you can't uh... – you know, yeah, and, and the other thing drugs is you are against need, the law. I know you can get all the drugs you want in New York. You don't need a long delay in a, in a gun trial. Gun trials are relatively simple. They don't require the kind of preparation that are required for complex cases. And so I think putting them on a speedy track can be done without denying 
uh, anybody's right to a fair trial. Alan Dershowitz, anything else before we take a break? <laughs> well, I got a big thing, but it'll take a long time. No, go ahead. Tell me. Give me a quickie. This group of lawyers who are now uh, going after 111 lawyers who helped uh, President Trump in his futile efforts to try to undo the election, something I fundamentally disagree with. But now this group is going after these lawyers and trying to get them disbarred. It reminds me of what happened during McCarthyism and during the civil rights period when they try to get lawyers disbarred for helping to end segregation and helping oh to God. end uh, McCarthyism. And so I'm, I've just volunteered to represent that group of lawyers pro bono if anybody tries to get them disbarred or disciplined for simply filing briefs uh, that ended up losing. You are doing the right thing. Well, Alan Dershowitz, thank you so much. And, uh, Always and a pleasure. we thank look you. forward to talking to you again soon. Me too. Bye. On the line with us right now is Francine Lefrak, a truly international woman in uh, today's being International Women's Day, uh, helping women in uh, the United States, helping women in Africa. Uh, good evening, Francine. How are you? I'm doing great, John. I feel very lucky to be able to help women around the world and now women in the Ukraine. They inspire me so much. And I think, you know, my grandmother fleed Kiev over 120 years ago because of Russian oppression. And how far have we come? How do you say it? We've come a long way, baby. Yeah, we've come a long way, but not. Tell us about the African. uh, Tell all Americans about the African women that you help. Well, we started uh, working in 2008 with the women in Rwanda who survived 1994 genocide, and we started to train them and educate them, and now we have over a 1,000 women that run their own businesses, and we're training other women to run their own businesses in refugee camps. And I really want to tell the, the women in Ukraine who are so brave and so resilient that they will rise like Phoenix and get out of this situation and their country will be stronger than ever. I've seen it with my own eyes on the ground in Rwanda, you know? Wow. Now also you, you've been helping women uh, that been in jail in uh, uh, giving them second chances in, in New Jersey. Uh, Tell us about that. You know, we started over six years ago working with over 200 women who had gotten out of Hudson County Jail, and not one of them has gone back to prison. And I have to tell you, the recidivism rate has skyrocketed. Right now, it's over 90% in the first two years go back to prison. When I started, it was like 65%. The numbers are out of control. But if you give women education, if you give them jobs, if you give them the dignity of work, they transform. And the women that we worked with have started their own businesses. They've become entrepreneurs. One has a hair business. One works for a food supplier, the library. They're doing unbelievably well. 200 women, not one went back to prison. I think that's a great statistic. That is a phenomenal statistic. And I understand you also work with uh, Jim McGreevy once in a while, the former governor of New Jersey? I, I, I did. We just opened a wellness center in New Jersey to help formerly incarcerated women get health care. 1,500 women who didn't have mental health services, didn't have gynecological and dental services, are now going to be serviced by serviced by our wellness center. And it's such a success. We're partners with St. Barnabas and Robert Woods Johnson, and I'm so proud to have my name on it. Well, that, that is wonderful work you do, and, and uh, your, your mother and your father are very, very proud of you. They're looking down for down uh, to, at you from heaven, and thank you for everything you do. And, and we'd like to have you on again real soon. Yeah, wonderful. Well, thank I'd you so it. much. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. That's the Francine Lefrak from the famous Lefrak family, and uh, she's spending her, all her time helping women, which is 
wonderful, wonderful thing to do. Let's take a break, and we're coming back. With Charlie Gasparino. Oh, those markets are real roller coasters. A common sense recap of the day's biggest stories. It's John Katsimatidis and Cats at Night on 77 WABC. Welcome back to the John Katz Matidis Cats at Night Show. We still got a good show ahead for you. We're going to be speaking with Dina Martin, Andrew McCarthy, Patricia Miller, Senator Alphonse D'Amato. But right now we have on the line with us Charlie Gasparino. My goodness, what did oil close at today? It was pretty bad. It was like 125, 126. Oh, boy. Charlie, where the heck are we going? <laughs> uh, well, I think we're going higher with oil. Um, uh, you, you know, I, when you look at these markets, to me, it seems like there's a degree of um, optimism here. I, I, maybe it's misplaced or maybe not. But this is not a, a, a market that thinks the end is coming and we're getting $150 a barrel oil. I'm not saying it's right. I'm just saying that this is a market that is suggesting that maybe Putin bit off too much he can chew. Maybe this ends positively for the Ukraine and he has to pull out. I'm not saying I agree with it, but it's 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 really it is kind of interesting. The markets were only off 180 points today. Mm-hmm. We're still trading well above 32,000. Um, you know, the economy is still kind of strong. I guess the the real question is this, though, and this is where it gets kind of dicey. In the past, the Fed would not have to worry if it was raising interest rates in this environment in, in a normal environment. It wouldn't have to worry about you know global instability. That makes the Fed's job in taming inflation a lot harder, and it, it, it makes it really tricky. Like they can, you know, if you you go too hard on on interest rate increases, you can literally plunge us into a recession. Uh, if you don't, you know, you got inflation, but inflation is going to rage out of control. So, um, you know, it's buyer beware out there. I, I I'll tell you, if I if I I don't tell people what to do. If I made a lot of money in stocks over the past two years, I I would get be getting defensive now. I don't see why not. Well, you also uh, at a hundred if, uh, if it maintains one hundred and twenty, one hundred twenty five dollars a barrel, that equates to seven dollars a gallon for gas. And John, can yeah. you explain to the American people that we're seeing with the price we're seeing now per gallon per what does that translate to at the pump, and when does that $7. happen? dollars. But how soon can we see it? Because that you probably uh, by well, what's today, March eighth. Eighth. You see it by uh, thirty days, forty days from now. So then, how how is the Biden administration continuously blaming Putin for the prices that we're seeing? When he doesn't have a clue. <laughs> he doesn't have a clue. And, and the fact that we're buying from Venezuela, that's a subsidiary of uh, of the Russia right now. And, you know, Venezuela, and, if, you know, if you know anybody that's been to Venezuela and know about the Venezuelan oil market, it is really the least environmentally um, uh, uh, compliant country in terms of drilling. It is it, it, they, they really destroy the, the environment there uh, with their oil, uh, with their oil exploration and, and drilling. And it, it is just so ironic that these lefties in the Biden administration is saying, they're like, oh, we can't drill here. We can't frack here, even though our fracking and oil companies do the, do, do the utmost to protect the environment. Let's go to Venezuela, which is literally polluting left and right. Uh, and not only that, it's, um, it's like a, it's a satellite of the, of the Russian, of Russia. I mean, it's, it's really bizarre. Complete and these the, the Biden administration is is one of the, it's one of the administrations I've ever seen. It's a president that gets mad at you when you ask him easy questions. It's uh, it's an administration that does everything they can to lose, including you know waiting forever to to ban oil exports from from Russia, and it's an administration that won't take the gloves off if they really want to do this and let us drill for our own oil. And it's an administration that's rushing to cut a deal with Iran. Well, I mean, Russia, Russia, yeah, I mean it's Iran. crazy. I mean, Russia, U.S. is using Russia to cut a deal with Iran. Uh, we gave back uh, a, a terrorist from Guantanamo to uh, Saudi, Arabia. Saudi Arabia. Saudi Arabia was very close partnership with Russia when oil was down to $20 a barrel. I mean, this is, uh, you know, the the average American doesn't really see the global chess game that's going on, except, you know, 
everybody else has a full chess game, and we have a couple of checkers. Yeah, it really is. We we have such weak leadership. It's it's scary. Um, you know, um, William Barr has a great book out about his his long career in, in, as a public servant, including uh, his years as Donald Trump's um, attorney general. And you know, he he's got, has obviously grave misgivings about about Donald Trump. But in a one to one, if it's a progressive in Trump, he he says you got to vote for Trump because these people are really. They just want to. Do, I mean, they, they, they don't have just, a clue. They're living on another. They're living on another planet, you know. Charlie, I was on Maria's show yesterday, and I suggested that the ideal thing for the president of the United States to do is put together Canada, United States, and Mexico in one room, and make a, a North Atlantic uh, treaty, uh, energy treaty, and because we can probably produce 15 million barrels a day and be self-sufficient. I know. And, you know, listen, climate is climate being being aware of the climate and worrying about uh, and trying to move towards a zero carbon uh, 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 emissions world is, is a noble goal. The, the question is, how fast do you do it? Do you do it like 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 the Biden administration and the environmentalists want to do it like overnight? Um, or do you do it in a transitionary phase? I mean, it was really an absurd spectacle watching Pete Buttigieg, the uh, transportation secretary, and Kamala Harris, the vice president, out there, you know, jumping around and clapping about uh, about electric vehicles. It's a circus. Um, it, it's a circus. Now, first of all, electric vehicles are expensive. Most you can't even get one now. It's harder to get. And here's what you, what people forget: to to build an, to to run, have an electric vehicle, you need a battery, right? Yep. You need certain minerals in that battery, including cobalt. Guess who uh, like has been hoarding all those minerals over the last five years? China. So instead of I – mean, think about that. We're going to be beholden to China? And that's how stupid they looked when they were dancing around talking about electric vehicles and clapping. I mean it was really a, a comedy. It was really – it was a clown show. They They have no idea – what it takes to build an electric vehicle. Even Elon Musk is is, is laughing at this whole as, as at this massive embrace of electric vehicles. He's saying that he runs Tesla. He's saying, you know, you got to move transition to that. You can't do that overnight. Yeah, I mean, you we can't. can do it over 20, 30 years. You can't do it tomorrow morning, you know. And you need fossil no. fuels to fuel the factories. No. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And you need a, you know. A, Natural gas. I mean, it's just, it's such a it joke. is really, it is really, it is really an absurd thing when when, uh, when Elon Musk is saying you can't do this overnight. You're going way too fast, and he's an electric vehicle proponent. Charlie, um, if your brother says to you, "What do I do in the market?" What would you tell him? My brother's, you know, my brother's the chairman of medicine at Brooklyn Hospital. He's the most. Um, uh, least aggressive investor in the world. So you have to know your client's risk tolerance. His his is very low. I would say if you – I would not be putting money to work in stocks right now. I would uh, be careful. It's not a lot of places you could be right now because bonds are getting crushed on inflation fears and stocks are getting crushed on uh, on higher interest rates. So I think it's – you know – uh, you know, I, I, you know, I like muni bonds just because they're triple tax free. You know, not New York but, City. Uh, you sure they're going to pay? I don't think we're going out of business okay. yet. <laughs> you know, we only missed back in the seventies one. I think one interest payment, right? Yep. Yep. Uh, it wasn't like the whole thing cratered, um, but we did go into technical default. There's, there's no doubt. Yeah, but about you had that. strong. But in those days, during that crisis, you had some common sense people. You had you had an effective governor. You had effective state legislative leaders. Uh, You had had the unions and the Rockefeller family. You had Hugh Carey. You had the banks that all got got together. The Rockefellers were part of the banks. Was as you know, they I think they ran Chase or or was it Chemical Chase Chase Chase. Chase. Um, Yeah, Chase uh, David Rockefeller. So you know, yes, you did have more of a civic minded approach. and he, and he didn't have the far left of the Democratic Party controlling the Democratic Party. Remember back then, the people that were running for mayor were people like Abe Beam, Mario Cuomo, Herman Badillo, who was a longtime libertarian Ed Koch. moderate. Ed Koch. Go down the list. Uh, Bill Buckley every now and then would pop in. Uh, you had Buckley's brother you know, running around in state politics. So 
this, and of course, the great Hugh Carey, who was a very effective governor. People forget how effective he was. He was very good. Um, you know, we don't have His that only now. mistake so is he married a Greek. <laughs> <laughs> but there's yeah, no faith in government. Great. I don't think anyone has faith in our government right now. Going from yeah. the top all the way to the bottom. I mean, you watch Biden, you watch a secretary of state. You know, I don't think any of them really know what's going on. Yeah. Well, think about it this way. A guy that is as talented as Andrew Cuomo, which he is talented and he's a smart dude, uh, just unravels like he unraveled. And, you know, and, and a lot of that was to, is his doing, you know, his, you know, obviously. His, he's running. That, he's running for governor running. again. I'd take him over what we got, wouldn't you? Well, probably. He signs off on this bail law. Yeah, I know. That was he did, really bad. He did sign the bail law. That's correct. Yeah. No, we well, need, we gotta take, we got to take a break. We have Dina Martin. You remember the famous Italian uh, Dean Martin's daughter right on? And it's International oh. Women's Day today. So I have oh, to hang up on Charlie Gasparino and, and bring right. in Dina Martin. Thank uh, you, Charlie. I, I, I give it to Dina. Thank you. <laughs> See you, guys. Dina, tell me. Sing me a song. Well, listen, you are, you are true. I am great. Uh, I, you are truly an international woman, and today is an International Women's Day, and you've traveled all over the world. You have sung all over the world. You, you, you've sang along with your father all over the world. Uh, give us uh, some reminiscence uh, tonight, tonight of your world travels. Well, you, you know what's so so great, and I was I was blessed with uh, you know first of all a fantastic dad, you know I mean Dean Martin you know forget about it he was unbelievable so sweet and kind and smart, uh, but you know I you know my mom you know I had two great moms, you know my uh, my mom Elizabeth uh, Montgomery uh, excuse me Elizabeth McDonald I was just doing a, a thing about Elizabeth McDonald. I, uh, so I just got a little confused here. But my mom taught me so many fantastic things, you know, to be strong, to dream big, um, and, you know, that I could achieve anything. I could do anything. And it was, you know, very exciting for me. And my dad, of course, you know, he had all of his pallies, Uncle Frank Sinatra, Uncle Sammy Davis Jr. And so I grew up with these people, and we would sing. But just imagine, you know, walking downstairs at your house, and there's Sammy Kahn playing um, you know, ain't that a kick on, ain't that a kick in the head on your piano? And you've got Dean Frank and Sammy singing. And so I, I absolutely learned from the best, but 601 Mountain Drive in Beverly Hills was absolutely extraordinary. And the incredible strong women speaking about International uh, Women's Day, Peggy Lee and Rosemary Clooney and Ella Fitzgerald, all people who came over to the house. And so I, I learned from them all strong, all, you know, fabulous, fabulous people. But imagine, you know, going out to dinner with Dean Martin, Frank Sinatra, Sammy Davis Jr., you know, Peggy Lee. It was just unbelievable times. But what I learned from them is to just keep going and to be strong. And so we were we were just accepted everywhere. And, right. you know, so for me, you know, what 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 a lucky life I had. But, you know, I learned uh, to watch them and to, uh, you know, really rehearse and, and know what I was supposed to do. Thank heavens, you know, they sent me to England to college. Uh, you know, I was just very, very blessed. But it was it was the strong women in my life who taught me, you know, to dream big and that I could achieve anything that I wanted to do. And I am. I'm a pilot. You know, I have a radio show on WABC Radio. A great radio show. <laughs> it's fantastic. In fact, I'm, I'm writing it right now in the midst of this. And I've got Dina Martin Live on Fridays. With, you know, and this coming Friday, it's my 104th show consecutive. Two years. Wow. We've been doing it. And I'll tell you, tonight we celebrated your Uncle Frank's birthday, his 106th birthday at Patsy's. Yep. That was a phenomenal night. That was so much fun with Joe Piscopo and all the people, you know, and, oh, my gosh, we just had a fabulous time. But it's a wonderful life because you can you can have success if you just work hard enough and, of course, have a little bit of luck. But, you know, women are, first of all, you know, moms, mothers, teach your children well and teach them to achieve and, and you know, manners and respect and hard work, and, and anyone can make it. Absolutely. Uh, Dina, more good times together. I look forward to seeing you soon, and happy International Women's Day. If anybody deserves it, 
you do. God bless you. Say hello to John for me. I will do that. And thank you to everyone, and thank you to WABC Radio. You guys are spectacular. We so brought back music radio. You really, really did. And, you know, and the ratings are great. So uh, thank you for, uh, for the experience, and uh, I'll see you on uh, Friday on Dina Martin Live. I'll see you soon. Okay, thank okay. you. Uh, let's take a break, and when we come back... Andrew McCarthy. And what are we going to find out? Judge? Well, talk about the Iran deal, talk about uh, Putin as a war criminal, talk about uh, Obama leaving well, uh, Ukraine. Let's take a break defense. so we can come right back. John Welcome back to the John Katzmatidis Cats at Night show. Right now we have on the line for us Andrew McCarthy. He's a columnist for the National Review. He also served as an assistant U.S. attorney for the Southern District of New York. And welcome, Andrew McCarthy. Uh, nice to be with you. So, uh, Andy, it's uh, it's Richard Weinberg. I want to talk to you about, about three issues. What do you think about these uh, investigations going on in the International Criminal Court about war crimes against uh, Putin? Well, I, you know, I, I never think that that I'm, I mean, that's what they do. And I think that's fine. Um, it seems to me that anything that puts pressure on the U.S. administration to to acknowledge the evidence that's going on before all of our eyes, which is that there are attacks on civilians and serial war crimes being committed by uh, Putin's regime in Ukraine, uh, anything that uh, so far President Biden hasn't been willing to acknowledge that. So I think anything that brings pressure to bear uh, for him to make that acknowledgement is helpful. And one of the things about if he is, in fact, indicted by the International Criminal Court, that means his freedom of movement is totally curtailed. Where is he going to go? He can't go to the United Nations. He can't go to international conferences. What does that mean for us? Well, I think, you know, look, his freedom of movement is going to be curtailed regardless, I think, of what the uh, International Criminal Court does. The United States, by the way, doesn't we're not a, a part formally of the International uh, Criminal Court. So I don't know how much their writ would run here, but he would have other problems here, I would imagine. Um, you know, there, there are legal complications with anything like this. There's a sovereign uh, immunity doctrine. Um, you know, it would be very complicated. I think that Putin, I would think, would be more worried about the people around him than the International Criminal Court. And I, I would imagine that um, uh, and I would certainly hope that his day to day is consumed with uh, with that worry rather than what's going on. I in think the that's hog. a good point. The s second thing is you recently had a column about Obama when he was president leaving uh, the Ukraine defenseless. Could you talk about that, please? Yeah, the uh, Ukrainians, I, one of the reasons I've really felt strongly that the United States uh, owes it to uh, help the Ukrainians defend themselves, including arming them to the teeth, uh, is the fact that we played an instrumental role in disarming them. That includes the, uh, Budapest, uh, the Budapest Agreement uh, in the 90s, in the mid-90s. during the ninety-four, um, right. Yeah, right. Um, where we got them to give up their nuclear weapons. And then when Obama was a member of the Senate, uh, he worked with the Republican Richard Lugar to persuade the Ukrainians to give up a great deal of their conventional weapons as well. Uh, and then in Obama's administration, he didn't he, he wouldn't give them uh, the weaponry that they needed to defend themselves, like javelin anti-tank weapons, um, even after those. Right. Even after the Russians took Ukraine and were waging war, I'm, I'm sorry, took Crimea and were waging a border war in uh, in the east that they're obviously now trying to uh, finish off. Andrew, this is Craig Eaton, a fellow attorney here, and um, I, I read your bio. It's very impressive. Now, I have one question for you. You successfully prosecuted the Sheikh in 1995. What are your thoughts on the release today of Mohammed al-Quantani by the Biden administration, sending him back to Saudi Arabia, saying that he had some mental issues? Yeah, I've been very concerned about this, and it, my concerns go beyond Qatani. I think it's, you know, it's one thing for 
President Biden to run around saying that, you know, notwithstanding how ugly it was in Afghanistan, he got us out of the war and he ended the war and he's running around saying he ended the war. And what I would just stress to people is that your capacity to hold people without charges as enemy combatants hinges on there being a war. If the laws of war don't apply, if the laws of war are not in effect because there is no war, then if you're holding people in custody, your choice is either to charge them and try them in court or you have to release them. So I think the issue with Katani is very disturbing because there's evidence that he was complicit in the 9-11 plot, even though he didn't uh, get here uh, in a way that allowed him to participate in it. But this is a deeper problem because there are a number of people who are still dozens who are still held at uh, at Guantanamo Bay, and only a handful of them, relatively speaking, have actually been charged with war crimes and will face prosecution. We have to figure out what we're going to do with those other people. What about some kind of a conspiracy charge? I mean, they know from the evidence that they're involved, that they had some involvement in this. They said he was the potential 20th uh, pilot hijacker. that was going to hijacker. Yeah. Uh, well, see, you know, I think the problem with this, and I've, I've had to wrestle this. I had to wrestle with it as a prosecutor when we actually did bring them into court to, to prosecute them. But um, after the war began in earnest after 2001, because I think the other side was at war for eight years before we kind of, uh, you know, we were treating it as a law enforcement problem. But the, the thing is, in wartime, a lot of what we do is based on intelligence that simply cannot be revealed in court. And I had intelligence that we could reveal in court, and I had to fight tooth and nail with the intelligence agencies to get it. So, you know, I know uh, how, how difficult this can be. And the big problem, I'm afraid, when you try to treat a national security problem as if it's a judicial proceeding is that you're, you know, in intelligence, you're dealing with a lot of information that may be very reliable, but it, it's stuff that you simply can't even, not only can't even, can't prove it in court, you can't acknowledge where it came from. You know, there's a case in the Supreme Court in the last few days where even though everyone on planet Earth knows that we had, uh, you know, one of these uh, internment in, in sites or uh, the places where they did the enhanced interrogations. We know we had one of those dark sites in Poland because of all the reporting and the testimony that's been given about it. But because the intelligence community has never acknowledged what countries helped us with dark sites outside the United States, um, they won't acknowledge that Poland was involved. And the Supreme Court said that they're allowed to do that because we take these intelligence relationships very seriously. So it's a big problem when you're trying to deal with things that have to be proved in court. Acknowledged. Uh, Andrew, thank you so much for coming on. And we have to, we're running out of time and we have to take a break. And uh, uh, let's have you on again real soon so we can get the rest of the story. Thanks so much. Thank you. Let's take a break. And when we come back. We're going to be speaking with Patricia Miller. She's the chief of special federal, federal litigation division of the New York City Law Department. And she defends uh, police officers. And Al D'Amato has some great news for us, and he'll be on too. There's never a dull moment here. New York's talk station. This is Talk Radio 77 WABC. Today, 77 WABC celebrates International Women's Day, and we're celebrating all day long, recognizing the contribution of women of all ages around the world. 77 WABC is celebrating International Women's Day, recognizing the contribution of women of all ages from around the world who are leading the charge to build a more sustainable future for everyone. And on the line with me right now is Sandra Lindsay. She's a critical care nurse and director of patient care services in critical care at Northwell Health's Long Island Jewish Medical Center in Queens. You may know her as the woman who was the first person in the United States to receive the COVID-19 vaccine. Sandra, can you believe it's been like two years now? I can hardly believe it that it's almost two years since the you know we got our first patient and the city shut down i was never ever scared at all right and you worked all during the pandemic tell me what was that like indescribable shock 
disbelief that this was happening, overwhelming fear, exhaustion. I felt like I was in a fog most days, but had to pull through because I did not want to get sick. I would feel incredibly guilty. I wanted to be there for my team. And so I put extra pressure on myself to make sure that I was safe. I was just fearful of getting sick, ending up in one of my ICU beds and and dying. Sandra Lindsay, again, you're a critical care nurse and director of patient care services for critical care at Northwell Health's Long Island Jewish Medical Center in Queens. Thank you so much for all that you do and, and that you have done. Thank you. You're welcome. Thank you. 77 WABC is celebrating International Women's Day, recognizing the contribution of women of all ages all around the world who are leading the charge to build a more sustainable future for all. Talk Radio 77 WABC. It's a common sense recap of the big stories. It's Cats at Night on 77 WABC. Welcome back to the John Katzmatidis Cats at Night Show. On the line for us right now is Patricia Miller. She is the chief of the Special Federal, Federal, I keep messing this up, Litigation Division of the New York City Law Department. Special Fed is responsible for the defense of New York City law enforcement and federal civil rights actions, including members of the NYPD. Welcome, Ms. Miller. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be with you. So tell us about your a recent case that you had that really uh, sticks in your mind. Uh, well, you know, we, we represent police officers uh, who make a decision to, to make an arrest uh, or to use force or to the ultimate decision, which is to pull a trigger. Uh, the recent one we had was a, uh, a shooting case, not, not fatal, non-fatal, out of Staten Island. Uh, and the jury um, rendered a decision for the defendants, the two officers in that case, in 23 minutes. So, in other words, they found that the officers did did the right thing under the circumstances. Of course, uh, the, those kinds of cases are not a an end zone dance because somebody's been been shot. But uh, it does speak to that when you present the case before a jury, you take out all the politics, you take out all the uh, advocacy groups, whatever it may be, and you just present to a jury evidence, just evidence. More often than not, they side with uh, the jury will side with police officers. At least that's been our experience here at Special Fed uh, with the Southern and Eastern Districts of New York. It seems like in the press and even among the public, it's it's always uh, the cop is the guilty one. How hard is it for you to combat that that kind of demonization of the men and women in blue that just want to go home safely to their loved ones? Yeah, no, you're absolutely right on that. You know, we provide um, and I think you hit on a good point. We provide a voice for police officers. So officers the, the men and women, the first responders that we represent, of course, we represent the city. But for those folks in particular, you know, they can't have a press conference whenever they want. Uh, they, they don't usually speak to the press. So what happens is their side of the story is never really told, which is why we take so many of our cases to trial so that the public, that is eight to 10 jurors, can actually hear the other side of the story. Uh, and I've had jurors say to me in the past, you know, oh, it's the first time I've ever heard an officer actually speak. And, and we find that, you know, you, you humanize the officer. You let the jury understand what it's like to be in their shoes at the moment they do whatever the decision is that they make to do, for example, uh, using their weapon or whatever it may be. And it, and it really, I think, empowers the officers on some level uh, and it informs the public. So it gives them a voice to speak in a controlled environment with a judge presiding over it. Uh, and it informs the public. So the public has, a, instead of one side of the story, you know, with the press saying whatever the press is saying, we, we do the final chapter. This is how it ends. This is how, what the jury decided. Uh, Ms. Ms. Millard said, Judge Richard Weinberg, one of the great concerns you have is police officers are making a split-second decision. Mm -hmm. And then it's very easy to second-guess them that you should have waited longer, you should have had more opportunity. But if somebody comes out flashing a gun, what is a police officer supposed to do? What's the reasonable expectation? They're supposed to wait until the... uh, the perpetrator starts shooting at them? Well, they're supposed to wait for the perpetrator to stick out his hands and say, please come and arrest me and put the handcuffs on me while your no, adrenaline pro- is pumping like, and you're seeing your life flash before your right. eyes. It's, a, it's become totally yeah. politicized. Well, I mean, yes, I suppose in some regard, but I, I do think that, um, you know, the officer is often, as you say, split-second decision. And juries are told that, which is why it's so important to get to a controlled environment like that. We take out the politics, we take out the media, we take out of all that. 
And juries are told, you know, you can't do this from the comfort of your couch watching a news clip. This, you have to put yourself in the shoes of the officer at the time when they're faced with the situation that they're put in. You know, juror, uh, uh, police officers don't approach an individual and they're given a resume, you know, and a pack of medical records. They don't have that. They have to, as you just said, make the split-second decision in a very tense moment. Uh, and, you know, to lay at their doorstep that, oh, you shouldn't have done this, you shouldn't have done that, that that's really easy to Monday morning quarterback. Uh, but we find, you know, we win about 83% of our cases. So we wow. find that 83 to 85%. Uh, and actually ticks up a little bit higher when we're talking about officers using deadly force or lethal force uh, as far as and what I mean by that juries finding in favor of the officers in these in these civil rights proceedings. And, it, and again, it's because the officers, uh, you know, they become humanized in front of the jury. The jury has to actually look at this person, their names on the verdict sheet, you know, and they and they 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 understand. Yep, we get it. We understand why you did what you did. Very different than what you see in the media, sort of one piece of the story. And I, I realize you folks are in the media, but you know. Right, well, you know what? That's that's the problem, Ms. Miller. This is Craig Eaton. I'm an attorney, and I also represent a lot of police officers. And yeah, and it's a shame because today, in today's environment, the the legislature and the state have handcuffed the police, and the media demonizes the police and makes them look like the enemy. And and you know what? The police are out there, like the judge said. You're making a split second decision. And you see a gun, and then everyone, the media tries to deflect that. Bottom line is not every cop is Derek Chauvin, the murderer of George Floyd. That's the problem. You know, like in any any industry, there's people that make mistakes, and then there's bad cops, there's bad lawyers, there's bad doctors. But you know what? We we have to start. You you protect the cops, and and that's a yeoman's job, and and we appreciate that because, you know, these police officers are out there making less than what – Everyone, other officers are making around the state. They're putting their lives on the line every day for each and every one of us, and we need to support them. Agreed. And since this is a part of International Women's History Day or Women's Day, I will point out that the, the folks that work here are, are more than half of the attorneys here are women, and uh, you know, seventy-five percent uh, are management here, and mm-hmm. we're, we're the ones that bring these cases to the to juries. Uh, and have them kind of understand from the perspective of the police officer. But I will say this, based on what you just said, if if you don't mind, it seems to me the real question is not laying all this at the doorstep of a police officer, but the real question is what put a young man in a position where he's pointing a gun at a police officer? What in society sort of failed him? We're out of time. Yeah. We would Thank love you. to have you back Thank again, Patricia. Thank you so Patricia. much for having you back again because we want to hear more Patricia about this. Patricia Miller, you're fantastic. And uh, this, you. you do important work, and happy International Women's Day. You certainly do a yeoman's uh, job. And thank you, Judge Weinberg. Thank you, Craig Eaton and Lydia Soronai for being here. Uh, God bless uh, New York. God bless America. And God help the people of the Ukraine. Yes.